My name's Hullins and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Bass are reputedly the number one angler's fish here in the UK. Probably more out of hope than expectation or accredited catch rates if the truth be known, particularly in light of the fact that the past few years have been notably poor in terms of bass recruitment. Yet even now in 2014, European fisheries ministers seem loath to take any meaningful action to engineer a turnaround in the species' fortunes, other than threaten anglers with restrictions while seemingly ignoring the part played by the commercial sector. As I'm linked up here with professional bass angling guide Tim Harrison, who's based at Newquay in South Wales, perhaps a real finger on the pulse appraisal of the current situation would be useful here from a historical perspective just to kick things off. It's about nine years now since I've been fishing or guiding uh, on sea bass professionally. And by professionally, I mean as a living. And it's slowly developed over those nine years to where it is today with a big cheetah marine catamaran. But initially I started working from the shore. And so I've got nine years worth of background and understanding about sea bass populations locally. It has to be said that my comments generally are locally focused. Although I've spent years trying to catch sea bass around various locations of the UK, particularly down on the south coast, Sussex coastline. But there I was doing it for fun on odd occasions, whereas here I'm doing it professionally, so my perspective has changed somewhat from where I was then. And it has to be said that over those years the stocks have declined on this coastline and I'm I guess I'm disappointed to say that but then I'm not surprised to say that with so much pressure on sea bass stocks up and down the UK coast and of course further afield I'm sure the French and the Spanish etc are not adverse to uh, trawling the odd sea bass there's so much pressure nowadays that it's almost a sad inevitability that the stocks are going to decline. The other perspective that I have on this is, of course, as an angling guide, my need to catch quantities of fish is significantly different from those that go out after them commercially. And just to try and paint that picture fully, I will head out of the harbour nowadays very often hoping to get a bass aboard and then having got a bass aboard hoping to get a couple more aboard and then if we've had a dozen we've had a fabulous day and those numbers are very low and can equate to a a just legal fish through to an eight nine ten pound fish for me it's about catching a fish or catching a bass from that perspective my key interest is to really find fish and I'm looking for consistency rather than quantity. If you come along to fish with me your aspirations will be to catch a sea bass and having caught a sea bass you'll aspire to catching another sea bass or a bigger sea bass but initially it's about catching a sea bass. So I have over the years measured quantity of fish that I catch but nowadays I'm more interested in consistency and I think that that is a novel way of approaching the sea bass population in that we would all like 
tens of thousands of these things swimming around our coastline. But to be realistic, we'd be better off with hundreds of these fish swimming around our particular bit of coastline so that we can actually go and catch you know, one or two rather than catching 30 or 40. There is, without doubt, a decline in bass stocks happening year on year. It seems to be that the commercial pressure placed upon them is ever growing and it seems to be that the catches as I understand it are declining having said that there are always exceptions and um, one hears stories of big trawl catches here and there and uh, indeed net catches here and there but generally the trend seems to be downwards. Again you've got to look at it from a local perspective because here on the west coast of Wales I'm fishing one tiny bit of the UK coastline and that tiny bit of the UK coastline, approximately 30 or 40 miles that I fish, will have a changing population of sea bass year on year. It's never going to be stable because the migratory patterns will be different depending on water temperature, environmental factors, weather, etc. And indeed the fish stocks. If a large party of fish comes up the coast and is unexploited by people further down the coast, then it may well land on me and my fishing will be excellent for a few weeks. On the other hand, that party of fish may have been intercepted and therefore they just simply don't arrive in my area. So when you think about bass stocks over time, it's a very complex question which is difficult to answer on a local basis. I can only say that year on year my quantity of fish caught is going down, but my consistency of fish caught stays fairly stable. When was it, do you think, that the public really cottoned on to bass as a regular option? And who was it that nudged them in that particular direction by raising awareness of the culinary qualities? There's a wonderful story, Phil, that goes around the village here. And I suspect it's probably true, because generally the stories that go around the village here have an element of truth in them. And this story is based upon a commercial fishing guy. And the story goes that sort of 30 or 40 years into his commercial fishing career, largely a lobster and crab man, he started to net for anything else he could get his hands on and came in one day with a fish that he then asked others around him what it actually was and that of course was a sea bass. And that shows that sea bass were not on his radar in any form for very very many years and up until very recent times. And so if they weren't on his radar, he wasn't fishing for them, he had no need to fish for them, and therefore there could not have been any demand for them. If there had been demand for them 40 years ago, he would have been all over the fishing for them. So the demand has occurred relatively recently. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it has been stimulated by sea bass being on just about every menu that ever appears on television. Although I see that changing now, Interestingly, I'm not averse to a bit of cookery myself. I very much enjoy getting in the kitchen and doing a bit of cooking across a whole range of things, not just sea fish, but of course 
I'm well blessed with sea fish here and I you know I follow cookery and cooking programs and I'm interested to see now that many of the minor species species that in fact I've enjoyed eating over the years are now beginning to appear on menus which probably uh, is a good thing for the sea bass although might not be a good thing for the minor species things like mullet and gurnard seem to crop up very regularly now and that's because the premium price that bass run at makes actually producing a meal a plateful of food in a restaurant too expensive to serve but yeah I think to underwrite the point you make, I think it's, it is it is true. It probably started in the early 80s, uh, the likes of Keith Floyd, great chef that he was, and then blossomed through to names that we know and love today, and it goes on. But then, of course, the amount of wild fish that are now available in the UK is going down. You, you'll, we'll see far more farmed fish in the supermarkets than you're ever likely to see. Wild fish, sea bass that is. Do you think there's a certain element of pressure coming from the fact that there's no TAC on bass and therefore no commercial control? I know the EU are threatening to bring in regulation but for some incomprehensible reason don't see commercial exploitation as a threat. Only angling. Well, limiting the take by anglers seems to be a political trend. It's stimulated, I suspect, by the salmonid sector, who has been under the same pressure for some years. I mean, I read an announcement very recently that the Scottish are going to maintain catch and release on the spring salmon run next year. And it, that examples exactly the way that the salmon and sea trout fisheries have been going for some years now. It seems that uh, it has been up to anglers to reduce their total take. And that sort of trend has influenced the chat that seems to be coming out of Whitehall nowadays about limiting the amount of sea bass that can be taken by anglers. It has to be said that for some years now I've been deliberately limiting the amount of bass that anglers can take aboard my boat three fishes. I maintain catch limits aboard the boat very strictly nowadays and that is two fish per person per day, two bass that is per person per day and then there are respective size limits at the lower end obviously the national legal size limit and then I have a, a maximum length as well. So I've been doing it and to be frank with you anyone that can take home more than a couple of sea bass and enjoy them in the kitchen is a strange fellow. I've never come across it, you just you can't prepare more than a couple of sea bass and enjoy them unless you have a the world's largest family or the world's largest refrigeration units. You just there's never enough room in the fridge and there's never enough time to prepare them. And what inevitably happens if you take more than a couple of fish in a day is they'll be thrown into the freezer and, and there they will lie and that is an absolute waste. Sea bass don't freeze very well in any case. Their texture and taste changes when they're frozen. We've all been guilty of throwing fish into the bottom of the freezer only to dig them out two years later and dispose of them. So I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to limit the amount of fish that anglers can take. I just think that it, it's not a considered option. It's just an option that's come about because that's what we do with anglers. You know, that's, that's how politicians see it. What is unfair is that it is just anglers that bear the brunt of the regulation and from my perspective if anglers are going to be regulated then the commercial sector should be as well.
Who then, in your opinion, are the main exploiters of bass? Which countries? Well, we're all guilty. I would hesitate to point any finger at any particular country. I think we are all guilty. I mean, the, the migratory patterns of the sea bass are enormous. They're caught in the Mediterranean, they're caught on the Atlantic side of Morocco, they're caught in Norway, and everywhere in between. Commercial fishermen will exploit any lucrative catch that is available to them. So I think to point a finger at any particular commercial fishing sector would be wrong. I think it's got to be broad-based and it needs to be on a European level so that you know there is a quality in catch quotering. I don't think that it is right to say I can catch that many but you can't. It needs to be generic across the whole commercial sector in Europe. Well, let me phrase it another way. My understanding is that it's French housewives demanding plate-sized fish that keeps the size limit down. Obviously, aquaculture is able to satisfy that sector of the market without any threat to the species in the wild. So would it not make sense to have all bass for consumption produced in that way and make the species in the wild recreational only? That's largely the, um, the Irish model, isn't it? And it seems to have worked fairly successfully in Ireland. I think there is an element of um, illegal exploitation continuing there, but by and large it's, it's worked very well. You know, fish farms are very effective at what they do. That's my background. It's something that I understand, or used to understand reasonably well. Time moves on. And producing sea bass of a certain size or a certain, of certain length, certain weight for the table as plate-sized fish. If fish farms can do that, then that's great. But there will always be a demand for wild fish as well. You know, there is an element of uh, snobbery in all fish eating, and uh, getting hold of a wild fish is always seen as a trophy. And I'm sure, particularly our continental relatives, will be more keen to get hold of wild fish because they'll see it as a premium product. And you'll never be able to substitute that for a total farmed product. For as long as commercial sea bass fishing is allowed, there will always be wild fish available on the market and there'll always be people who aspire to getting their hands on them. So I think size is a... Yeah, fish farms have an, an ability to produce a standardised product and long may that continue, but it isn't the be-all and end-all solution to the exploitation of sea bass. That being the case, what needs to be done and by whom? Well, I think we've got to look at ourselves first of all, haven't we? And by that I mean each of us individually. I write on this kind of stuff fairly regularly on both blogs and, and national angling magazines. And I, and I believe that we must start by looking at ourselves and practising best practice. That is, as anglers, as people that go fishing, we have to acknowledge that the days of going out and taking lots of fish and filling the boat with fish that we then do not use appropriately have to change. And we must get better at taking less fish individually. Having said that, it is, I recognise, very easy for me to sit here and say, we've all got to take less fish, because for me that isn't an issue. I, I go fishing or at least I'm with people that are fishing every day from mid-March to November all year long, and I see hundreds of sea bass, and therefore I, I can be fussy about it, can't I? Very easy for me. But if you come down to the seaside for your 
two-week holiday and you manage to escape the missus and the children for an evening's fishing and you stumble onto a party of sea bass, it's very difficult to say, well, I'm just going to take the one. You know, quite naturally, you're out there, you've got an opportunity, you've only got one opportunity in the year, well, maybe half a dozen tops, and, and you're going to try and take a few fish. And, and to produce that sort of self-control into our fishing is a challenge. But I think it's where we need to go, and I think that's an educational aspiration. I think we should be looking at educating ourselves to to understand the pros and cons of returning more fish. And if we take that position, we are then in the moral high ground to start arguing more vociferously with the likes of uh, local and national government that both our uh, UK-based commercial fishing and indeed the wider European commercial fisheries need to reduce their catch take. And the best argument for that from an angling perspective is to say, look what the angling sector is actually worth to you, Mr UK politician, as a whole. When you balance it against the commercial bass fishery, the recreational angling fishery is already and could be significantly larger. And I think there's a strong argument there, but we must take the moral high ground first of all, and we're not. I think we're moving in the right direction. And interestingly, something that's helped that, I think, is the ability now for all of us to travel wider has brought new horizons, new experiences to our angling. I think if you you only have to go to Australia or New Zealand or Florida, even parts of France and Spain, the regulation starts to kick in. In Spain, you need a sea angling license. In Florida, you can't take fish over a certain size. You can't take fish if they're certain species if they're female. And that kind of learning is beginning to filter down into the UK's angling population. And and there is benefit there. I do see that on the boat. People will come on the boat and, and they'll praise fishery regulation that they've seen in America or elsewhere. And that helps teach us that helps helps us understand you know in a generic sense how managing our stocks returning more fish being more aware of what we're doing will in the end put us onto the moral high ground and allow us to enforce change politically that's the way i see it working you touched earlier on the value of recreational fishing to the uk economy a fact highlighted by the government's own sea angling 2012 survey Yet when it comes to key legislation and other big decisions, the commercial lobby still has the bigger voice. Well, you can blame King John, who wrote the Magna Carta, I think, who uh, set out within the Magna Carta the right of fishery, and it is within our psyche here, and I'm talking, when I say our, I'm talking the great British public psyche, that we have a right to go out and exploit our fish stocks. Historically, we have always seen our commercial fishing sector as an important part of the UK's economy, important part of the UK's culture, and our fishing villages, etc., uh, etc. Et the UK is full of lovely photographs of trawlermen with big beards and nice flat caps on fishing boats, isn't it? And it, there's nothing wrong with that, and, and that should be celebrated, and to a certain extent it should be protected. But it is a picture of the past, the days of our 
massive exploitable fish fish stocks are long gone. Um, we've seen it happen to just about everything: the herring, the cod, the mackerel, <laughs> the sea bass. The, those days have gone, and we have to now, talking generically, still we have to see things in a different light and start taking a different approach to our fishing. But it's a long, long process. If little seaside fishing villages, very like the one I'm sat in talking right now, uh, have built their own little economies on the commercial fishing sector. They survive because of the commercial fishing sector and that must be recognised. One can't deny that there is significant local importance up and down the coastline brought in by the commercial fishing sector. It's a change process that needs to take place slowly and it is helped by the likes of myself, he says rather immodestly, doing what I do because people begin to see that you only need to catch a very few fish relatively to earn a, a good living that everybody benefits upon. You know, people come in and stay in holiday houses and B&Bs etc. The recreational fishery is undoubtedly where the future lies. It's just going to take a long time to get to it. Does the current shortage in both numbers and quality of bass in part play into the hands of people like yourself by feeding the need to employ guys these days to get a result? So what does somebody buying in your services get that they couldn't otherwise provide for themselves? It started by the fact that I can catch the things uh, or I could catch the things, well I still can. I learned how to do it and that is a skill set and I felt that I could market that skill set. And I suspect that the others around the UK that are involved in guiding probably came in from the same route. I can do this and I can show others how to do it. Um, has the decline in stocks grown my customer base? No, I don't think so. I don't think people come to me because sea bass are any, any harder to catch today than they were 25 years ago. I think people come to me for the same reasons, just the learning, the understanding and the experience. I'll often say to someone who rings me up and says, look, I want to learn how to catch sea bass. And I say, yeah, OK, well, at face value, it might seem like a very expensive day to come along with a bass guide, but you are buying a lifetime's worth of experience and as long as you keep your wits about you and your mind open you will go away with a huge chunk of that lifetime's worth of experience that you'll then be able to go and use time and time again for yourself. I struggle with this one a bit in my own mind trying to answer it and there's a couple of analogies that I use to try and answer this very issue. I will get stopped in the street here and someone will come up to me and they'll go uh, are you Tim yes yeah I'm Tim yeah um, can you tell me where I can catch sea bass locally and I will always hesitate and say well I, you know I'm delighted to help but you're going to need to employ my time and then I'll, I'll help you well can you tell me how you catch them and again I'll give them the same answer and the analogy that I use is that we seem able as a as a <laughs> as a group of anglers to be able to sort of march up to each other and say uh, excuse me mate can you tell me how you do this whereas you would never stop a solicitor in the street and say excuse me can you just give me some advice on on this particular house purchase 
need or, or, or stop a doctor in the street or social etiquette somehow in the UK is that if you bump into a, an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer you, you sort of what do you do you know I'm a lawyer oh very interesting where do you work and that's kind of ended the conversation but if you bump into an angler you seem able to be able to ask him all sorts of questions and try and gain that understanding and that to me is my product that's my skill sets my skill sets here on a local basis on a on the 40 miles of coastline that I fish is where to find bass. That's the first point. Where are the little hot spots? Where are the acacia trees, as I've described them? Where are the places where bass hold? I have that. Then secondary to that is how do I catch them? How do I find them? And of course the how do I catch them bit is transferable across the whole of the UK. The skill sets that you can learn from me on how to catch sea bass you could then take on your summer holiday to Cornwall or uh, for that matter to France or indeed Norway. So I don't think it's about a decline in stock promotes the use of bass guides. I think sea bass have always been tricky to catch. They've always been aspired to being caught. People want to catch them and it's the learning that a bass guide offers I think. That's the way I see it. It may be that there are others see it more as a sort of catching thing. You know, you, if you employ me, you will catch a few sea bass. But from my perspective, is is different to that. It's about the learning, and then the catching. Yes, I will try all I can to catch you a fish, but I guarantee you will go away with all of the learning that you could possibly want. A year's worth of experience. You say that people aspire to catch bass. But sometimes I wonder just how many. The picture I see is that of quite a small number of dedicated followers, with the vast majority of anglers fishing for other things, though obviously always happy if a bass should come along. So what is it then about the species that marks it out as such a special case? Well for me, I mean, I, I've done everything. I've been called to gudgeon out on a double pinky and a size 22 barbless out of canals. I've stick floated for chub in rivers, I've waggler fished, barbled, I've carp fished and then onto the shore, done the shore casting, salmon, trout, the lot. For me, finding and catching a sea bass is the ultimate that is available in UK angling, particularly when you describe catching sea bass in clear seawater off the surface. I think you're as close to the kind of sport fishing that many people will travel away to go and get abroad, you're as close to it then as you will ever be in the UK. So for me they've been a progression, something I've arrived at, they are my ultimate, but then someone else will tell you that of course a barbel is or a poor beagle shark is, but for me that's one of the reasons. Secondly of course they're stunning fish, they're just spectacular, that big dorsal fin up uh, when they're in fight mode, <laughs> attack mode, are just wonderful. And I never tire, I never tire of looking at them. They seem to, seem to have just become addicted to sea bass. And I think also in angling terms, they are at the kind of pinnacle. I guess if you go off down to the coast, you might target something with your beachcaster and lugworm. You might target something. I'm just thinking about my days of doing that myself. I'd be thinking dabs and whiting, but in the back of your mind you're wondering, well, will a cod come along and maybe the season, you know, it's just about right for a bass. It's like the, it's, it's the pinnacle, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think for me they're at the top of the tree. 
Let's say then that I was to book a guided day out with you. I take it that we'd only be looking at boat fishing here. So tell me what I should expect, what I'd see, and if I'm lucky, what I might expect to catch. Well nowadays all of my work is done on our boat Three Fishes. She's a nine metre cheetah marine catamaran and she's the, well she was the only bespoke built um, cheetah marine catamaran of her class. There is now one other in the UK but that isn't, that's a private boat. She, she remains the only commercial jump on board licensed passenger carrying boat of her class and she's built specifically for lure casting for sea bass. I don't do that exclusively. I'll lifebait for sea bass and I'll also fish for many other fish species which we may well touch on in a while. So I mean, if you come to me to go bassing then you are employing my guiding skills and abilities. We've touched on that take-home experience that you can just glean from me. You're buying time aboard three fishes and you're also buying the use of quality bass lure casting kit. I carry complete <laughs> fishing tackle shops worth of lure casting kit and everything that's aboard is of the highest quality from rod reel braid links uh, through to the various lure types. So the way I operate is I work on an hourly basis. I have a flat hourly rate which for 2015 will be £75 an hour and for £75 an hour you get all of the things I've just described and you can come along with a maximum of six persons to lure cast for sea bass. Having said that I would always advise that you come along with less than six because you get more space. She fishes four, one in each corner being a big rectangle of a boat, fishes four absolutely perfectly. But six is my maximum. And then you can choose how many hours you want to fish and you can choose when you want to fish. The rest is entirely by negotiation. So for instance, um, some guys want to go out at first light in the summertime and I'll be on the boat at three o'clock in the morning. And for other guys that are on holiday here, the idea of getting up at four o'clock in the morning is just uh, beyond them and they'd rather fish in the middle of the day. And I'll do whatever people feel they want to do. Obviously, I say that best times tend to be early morning and late evening, but it's entirely up to you and I'll give it my best shot to find you some fish. So we'd agree a number of hours and we'd agree a start time, finish time, and you jump on board and off we go. I'm always very rigorous with my safety stuff. I'm a lifeboat coxswain here and I like, uh, I like to keep things safe, so we have a safety brief and then we're away and I will take you to where I believe there to be bass. Lure casting for sea bass in simple terms is all about location. It's location, location, location without Phil Spencer and Kirsty Allsop. It's about fishing a place where on the day I believe the bass will be and if they're not there we'll go to the next place and then the next place and so on and so forth. And so you might find in a typical four hour trip, you might find you fish 10, a dozen locations. You might find you fish only one because the first one we go into, there's fish there. One never knows. And it's just about experience. It's about judgment. It's about water quality. It's about the environmentals. 
And like all fishing, it's about luck. In fact, while we're talking like this, it occurs to me one occasion last year where you could argue my experience came into play, but you could also argue that pure luck came into play, and I'm not certain which it was. But I got a group of guys aboard fishing location one, which was a local reef, and, and we'd had a couple of fish, a couple of small bass. I don't get school bass here, so when I say small bass, they're generally of the sort of pound and three quarters, two and a half pound sort of class. And it was good. We'd, we'd had a start, a couple of fish on board, no problem. An hour of the trip had gone. It was a four-hour trip, and it was time to move, and I knew I had got fish up the coast. So it was a case of fish location one, hope to get a fish out of it. Maybe there was lots of fish. If we got a fish out of it and there wasn't lots of fish, we'd move up to location two where... I believe there to be a good party of fish. If I remember right, Dad found them the day before. And I headed up the coast, said to the guys on the back, um, make yourselves comfortable, get a coffee, have a seat. Three Fishes has got nice comfy seating aboard. Have a breather, 10 minutes, we'll cruise up to the next patch. The next patch was about three miles up the coast. Three Fishes cruises at about 20 knots, very comfortably, pretty quietly. And um, off we went. And we're cruising up there, and I became aware that slightly inside me, about 200 metres inside me, there was uh, some kitty wakes working. Now kitty wakes are a really good indicator species for various pelagic fish, things like mackerel, herring, sprats. Their particular feeding habits seem to be, um, they seem to like to pick up particularly small bait fish like sprats. They always raise my interest. I picked up this party of kittiwakes, but what was unusual about it was that they were not in a group. Very often they'll work together in the classic working birds formation, but they were not in a group. They were spread down a very narrow line, just for the sake of describing it. The line was no more than about five metres wide, but over a very long distance, uh, about half a mile or so I see in my mind's eye. Quite a long line of just the odd kittiwake, 5, 10, 15 metres, another kitty wake, 5, 10, 15 metres, another couple of kitty wakes. Very dispersed, very light, really nothing significant going on, but something that made me just click on to the fact that something unusual was happening. And you know, to tell the truth, as I was cruising, boat going 20 knots, guy sat down on the back, up towards the next reef. I actually physically turned the boat towards the kitty wakes, and then turn the boat away from them, back onto her original course. I could not make my mind up. I kind of went, yeah, we've got to fish this. No, we're not going to fish this. And in the end, having made that kind of <laughs> loop in the water, the guys on the back probably detected it. I then thought, oh, damn, we're going to have to fish this. I've just, I've, we're going to have to fish it. And I, I swung her over to starboard, I pulled her back, I stuck her in neutral, went outside, said to the lads, look, we're just going to try, I don't know why, Just these kitty wakes, bloody blah, as I've just described to you, it's just, just smelt right somehow, and as you've probably already guessed, we fell onto a party of fish, and we had 18 on the boat, up to six pounds in about 20 minutes, and the four guys had some of the best fishing of the year. They were gone, in 20 minutes gone, but just wonderful, the fish were coughing sprats up, and what had happened was that they'd 
I think a shoulder a bass had found a, a shoulder sprats and they dispersed the shoulder sprats. The kittiwakes were doing a mopping up job over a large distance and these fish were hammering into them. That's the kind of stuff that you're paying me for. You can call it luck and I'm I'm open to that argument, but you also can say, well that's experience, that's that's years of doing it, that's that's just being out on the water and reading the water. And so on every day I'm out there trying my level best using all of the experience that I've got to try and find your fish. Don't always succeed, I have to be honest. You cannot drive a nine metre catamaran out of this harbour, or indeed any harbour, every single day of the season from mid-March through to mid-November and catch fish consistently every single day. It's just not possible. Some guys will get trips of a lifetime, some guys will have great trips, some guys will have good trips. And at the bottom of the scale, some guys will just not catch. But I always try to make sure people go away with an experience and a lot of learning. Without wanting to fall into the trap which you've already set for me, I'd like to ask a few more specific questions in respect of the fishing. Very much a general view on the available choices regarding hand tackle, braid versus mono and lure choice with regard to conditions. A generic answer really, as opposed to a point me in the right direction at new key sort of request so that I can do the same thing as you but without paying for it. Am I in order asking that? Yeah, that's not a problem at all. In actual fact it was a client that said to me some years, probably my longest client that's worked with me for years and years and years, actually said to me that we'd had this conversation about being open about what you do and whether I should and shouldn't. I was always very closed about it, very protective, very kind of... I'm not telling you anything. And I still am to an extent. If you're not paying me, then I will be a little bit more circumspect about what I talk about, obviously. But in this kind of scenario, I'm very open about what I do. And it was driven by what this client said to me. And what he said is that if you are going to put yourself up as an expert, as a professional, as someone who is at the top of the tree, then you should see yourself in a way as a professor at a university. Professors don't go around keeping secrets. In fact, professors do exactly the opposite. They'll stand in front of people and give you their secrets. They'll teach you and they'll be held up for doing so. And I think what that client said to me was absolutely right. In life, you can be too damn protective. So I haven't got an issue at all about talking about what kit I use, not a problem at all. I would be more hesitant about saying what kit I use in that given location over there. So in kit terms, um, boat fishing is slightly different for shore fishing uh, when lure fishing for bass in that I like to use shorter rods on the boat for a couple of reasons. I find holding the rod at a nice angle from boat to water generally is a very comfortable fishing position. In other words, if you have a long rod, either you end up dunking your rod tip into the water or you have to hold your rod at a slightly different angle. So shorter rods enable the rod to be angled down towards the water. And then from a purely practical health and safety point of view, shorter rods mean that lures are not being pinged around people's ear holes quite as readily. The longer the rod, obviously, the more leverage comes into play. So I like short rods. My rod's all around at sort of two metre level. 2 to 10 and to be frank with you any rod of that kind of length is going to ping a lure more than far enough on a boat to go and find fish you're not having to battle with wind uh, you're not having to battle with wave action 
uh, you're not having to battle with you know, topography, weed and rocks, etc., that you would from the shore. So my rods are generally short and stiff. I like uh, lightweight, classic, what one well, nowadays, what a classic short lure rods. In the early days of bassing, I was trying to import rods from America. Some of the earliest and best rods that I ever got hold of were from Holland, uh, from a guy called Bertus Rosemeyer, who uh, Bertus um, really set out lure fishing for Zander in the Dutch lakes and he actually developed his own range of lure rods that were much more akin to what I was using. The classic British spinning rods of uh, 9, 10, 11 foot are really not, not suitable for boats and not suitable for lure casting, not, not to the level that, that it's done now. So my, my rods are short, I like uh, reels around the sort of 2,500 size always hesitant when I'm describing real size because one manufacturer's real size is not another one's but something around two and a half thousand three thousand is the kind of size and I'm currently using Shimano trios on the boat uh, what I look for with a reel more than anything is a slow oscillation the speed that a spool that the spool moves up and down I like the line lay to be very crisscrossed across a reel particularly when using braid, because braid will bite into the reel face and a crisscross pattern across the spool means that the braid doesn't bite into itself and therefore it will cast biting fish etc. is a lot, a lot easier. So slow oscillation is something that I'm pretty strong minded about. Braid, uh, generally always Power Pro 9 kilo, as pretty much a given. I like Shimano's Samurai, sorry, it's, it's the it's Shimano's now taking it over, but it's a brand called Samurai. I kind of like that, but but pretty much it's Power Pro. If I go onto the marketplace to buy, I'll buy Power Pro, uh, nine kilo, and then down to Lynx again. Pretty fussy about that. I like the decoy egg snaps of the medium size. Sort of real techie information there, but that's the stuff I like to use. Um, Savage Gear do a similar link, but a nice wide gaped link. I don't use leaders, and I'm pretty argumentative about that, uh, and we can explore that if you want to. And then straight through to lures. Over the years, I know what works, and so don't experiment that much with lures. I like the Lucky Craft range, and I have Lucky Craft shallow runners as well as surface lures. Some of the Rapala lures are very good, and I've got a few of the more high-tech modern lures, Tackle House and IMAs, etc. But if you're paying me to find you some fish, then I want to give you a lure that I trust and know is going to catch you some fish. So I will very rarely experiment with clients' time. And therefore, you will find yourself, if you fish with me, using a tried and tested selection of lures. Uh, hard plastics when hard plastics are fishable, soft plastics when soft plastics are fishable and that depends upon location and water colour and water depth and all sorts of environmental factors. And then other than that the most important piece of kit that I've got on the boat is the Boga Grip and I wouldn't be without it nowadays. Having had on two occasions now a bass lure and a set of trebles attached to my thumb I don't wish to repeat that again. So now the bag grip comes out as soon as a fish is caught and in the net. And uh, it's a, it's a marvellous tool. There's some argument whether it's, 
I think it's a great tool from a photography point of view. I know uh, the great Sea Angler editor Mel Rust was always on at me about um, uh, bogey grips featuring too much in my photography, and I, I think to an extent he has a point. But uh, other than the photography argument, they're a wonderful tool. Having looked in some detail at your guiding history, taking a retrospective step now, tell us a bit about your own personal history. How you got into angling and the progression leading up to becoming a professional guide. For me, it's been a progression all the way through my working life. Um, fish have been my uh, complete lifeblood. As a young man, as a boy, all I could think about was fish. I learnt my fishing skills trying to winkle what seemed like huge brown trout at the time, but were, were probably no longer than about six inches, out of little Welsh hill streams with six-foot split cane fly rods and dry flies. That was where my angling skills came from. But when I wasn't doing that, as I've already mentioned, I spent time catching just about anything, whether it was chub out of rivers or gudgeon out of canals, I would be fishing. And it was through that absolute passion for fishing that I ended up pretty much flunking out of school. I spent much of my school days either playing rugby or fishing and um, didn't do very well at school at all and left school under a bit of a cloud without many places to go to because my qualifications just weren't going to take me there. And it was a careers advisor, I don't know whether schools still nowadays do careers evenings, I suppose they do, a careers advisor and I'm going back now into the 70s. I wish I knew his name, who said, had I ever thought about fish farming? I think he was desperate to try and find something to do with fish that would motivate me. Mentioned fish farming, and then it was my, my dear dad who took up the mantle and started to understand what fish farming was. It didn't mean anything to me then, and whether it could provide a career. And he found a fish farming fishery management course down at a college which in those days was called Sparsholt and I think nowadays it's called Hampshire College of Agriculture and we set out upon a journey uh, I set out upon a journey trying to get into that place to go and learn fisheries management fish farming and that journey took me initially into a, a just an aquarium centre and a garden centre I had to go and get hours of work to be able to get on a course I then did a YTS course youth training scheme course on a fish farm in Oxfordshire, living in a caravan. I remember the days of waking up in winter's mornings with my hot water bottle that had been thrown out of the bed, frozen alongside me. And that was in my you know, early teens, 16, 17 or so, uh, just to go and get experience, sufficient experience to get to college. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I achieved that, got on to a course, a college course, and spent two years in the early 80s on that doing uh, fisheries management and that just took my life to a whole different place. I ended up leaving there to go to, finishing there, to go to the west coast of Scotland and farming salmon for, would you believe all people, the Rock Creek Genesis and got involved with a guy called Ian Anderson from another rock group, Jethro Tull, who still has salmon farms up there and spent six years up on the west coast of Scotland, salmon farming and doing a bit of lobster potting in the background. Loved it, chased finnock as they were called up there, sea trout, 
and salmon when the going was good and when the going wasn't good for them I would chase anything that I could get out of the sea locks. Brilliant pollock. And one of my great regrets is that probably today there was sea bass up there and I, I hadn't seen the light in those days. There is sea bass up there now, uh, great sea bass fishing and uh, some of the beaches on, uh, on the Isle of Mull. I really ought to go back and fish sometime. So yeah, I left Scotland having gained that experience and then joined the National Rivers Authority, NRA, which in later days became the Environment Agency. I had a very similar career path myself. Flunk school, NRA fish farming, then the Environment Agency. Yeah, did you indeed, right. You'll have to tell me about that. Um, yeah, joined the Environment Agency, NRA, then an Environment Agency, and that took me... Uh, partly doing inland work, partly doing sea work from Cheshire, then down to Sussex, doing fisheries protection work down in Sussex for the Environment Agency. And then slowly over time, and I'm talking over a period of about 15 years here generalising, my career took me up into the higher echelons of Environment Agency fisheries management and... Um, before I gave it up to go and do what I'm doing now, I ended my career as Head of Fisheries and Recreation for Environment Agency Wales, with uh, an idle but true boast, £21 million budget, 100 FTE, full-time equivalents underneath me. So, yeah, for a guy who uh, could think of nothing but fishing at school and flunked, I, th I left school, I think, with one, in those days they were called O-Level. <laughs> to work up to that level through a lot of um, additional education and uh, you know I did further education courses correspondence courses um, management level courses that kind of stuff I slowly built my career but I found then working at that level of the environment agency was then that I was within politics and particularly obviously fisheries politics and some of the politics I found very challenging but dealing with politicians were quite challenging. I spent a lot of time in various waiting meetings with the likes of uh, Elliot Morley, uh, Ben Bradshaw, of course, who stood around, Ben Bradshaw MP, Kate Hoey, those kind of people dealing with fisheries as high as it gets at uh, political level. But I found that time on a personal level quite challenging. People have said to me afterwards since people that I was working with at the time, that I was very good at what I did. I could talk the talk, but I didn't feel very happy doing what I was doing. And it just seemed right that uh, I needed to go back to where it all started, and that was holding and handling fish. It took a couple of years of hard conversations with my wife before we plucked up sufficient courage to do it and to move on and go and do the next thing. Uh, never looked back. It has to be said that the grass is always greener, you do swap one load of life issues for another load of life issues, but nevertheless, I haven't looked back and I would not go back. I'm very happy doing now, having my own business, Epic Fishing Limited, my own boat, and uh, doing what I do now is where I'd rather be. I think the, the world of uh, hardcore fisheries politics is a world that is best left to those that enjoy playing in it, I think. Amazing. Deja vu even. I also left school with a single GCO level, only I ended up working on a truck assembly line. And again, like you, fish, fisheries and fishing were everything to me at that time. 
So after completing an Institute of Fisheries Management course, I persuaded Liverpool John Moores University to take me as I stood as a middle-aged mature student, which after completing my BSc, got me into the coarse fish farming side of the fledgling NRA, where after the switch to the Environment Agency, I managed to tap into a pool of money to do a fisheries-based PhD. Interesting, isn't it? Um, and I'm sure, having you know, I know you've done a few of these interviews, I'm sure you've found others that have... Maybe not identical, but have gone through the same sort of route, and the backbone to that route has been a fish thing. It just... <laughs> Absolutely. Amazing. Anyway, back to the job at hand. Something I picked up on from visiting your website is that for your offshore work, like a growing number of angling specialists, you operate a large outboard-powered catamaran instead of the more traditional inboard diesel-powered monohull. So what's the thinking there? A lot of this is quite personal in that it's a measure of my own abilities. Um, some of it is based upon safety. Covering the sort of ability thing, first of all, I never really understood diesel engines. People say to me, oh, diesel engines are very uh, easy to use, and I'm sure if you understand them, they probably are. I never really understood diesel engines. I'm not going to suggest I terribly understand outboard Petrol engines either, um, they're pretty high-tech and very difficult to deal with as well. But diesel engines always seem to be big and noisy and um, I don't really like the smell of diesel <laughs> on a personal level. So th that was one thing. I don't, and naturally I find myself more of a petrol engine person. Uh, whether that fits with other people I don't know, but that, there you are. Diesel engines generally in days gone by equaled one engine in a boat and I never really felt happy about one engine in a boat. I know there are tens of thousands of boats of various types with one engine in them that chug along very merrily day in day out but on a personal level I never really liked that. I never really liked the idea that one my one engine might go fat and that was me bobbing out there waiting for a lifeboat. Uh, now being a lifeboat coxswain, my worst scenario possible is to go and be collected by my own lifeboat. So the more engines I've got, the better. So that was one thing. I mean, I know the big catamarans will have, some of them have twin diesel engines, and, and I understand that. And I, I get, the sense, they get the idea of having twin diesels. So the one thing was just one engine. Another thing was the fact that I don't like diesel engines, I don't like diesel. So the, those are two sort of very crude and minor points. A big part of it is operating here on this coast doing what I do. I'm in amongst all of the commercial potting, lobster potting, crab potting guys lines and they are a significant problem on this coast to people who are just boating in general. And diesel engines equal either legs which are slightly better or shaft drive and shaft drive and ropes just is an absolute nightmare. Plenty of stories about guys sticking their goggles on and going over the side to unfoul a rope. Well, good on them. I'd much rather lean over the back of mine, trim an engine up and untie it in the dry and warmth. Thank you very much. So operating where I do, catching ropes is an occupational hazard. I have to be said I didn't actually do it last year, but it does happen unless you're concentrating continuously. Outboard engines allow you the opportunity to just trim them up and get the rope off. From a practical boating point of view, business point of view, outboard engines are just easy to replace, easy to manage, easy to service. 
I put the catamaran on the beach and a good local lad comes along and services it while she sat on the beach in between the tide. He can just get up the engines, they're sat on the outside of the boat, he can do what he needs to do, put the cowlings back on and off you go. And I've always known, worst case scenario, should I lose one to some sort of major incident, it just goes bang for whatever reason, then uh, it can just be lifted off, taken away and um, another one put on. So the ease of swapping them. To me, it's a rambling answer, Phil, but to me, they just make more sense. Great economy, very quiet, quick. Mm, can't really fault them. The other commercial outboard users I've spoken to, having the main been looking at it more from a cost-saving perspective, and all things considered, have declared the concept a resounding success. Yeah, I mean, fuel prices are going down, and long may it continue, that's great news. But, you know, as a limited company, VAT-registered limited company, the VAT comes back, uh, the duty comes back. And then it's down to how you drive it. If you're going offshore long distances with paying customers on the back and you need to get from A to B, then it's throttled down and off you go and your fuel costs are going to mount up. Um, kind of stuff that I do doesn't really demand that kind of fishing. Most of the time when I'm on, I'm drifting inshore reefs, I'm drifting them engines off. And when I'm drifting along the coast fishing, I'm drifting with engines purring. Then having nice quiet engines ticking away just is inobtrusive for the customers that are fishing around them. Now I wouldn't want to be doing what I do with a diesel engine going dong 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 in the back, thank you. Now much of the conversation so far has centred around bass, but you're not a single species guide by any stretch of the imagination. So fill in the rest of the missing detail for us here. What's happened over the years is that the guiding business led from the shore to a small boat to a bigger boat and now to a very big boat, relatively very big boat. But you can't fill a very big boat with a bass guiding product. Well, I am yet to do so. And probably, in brown figures terms, probably about 40% of my business is bespoke bass guiding. So I have an asset. I have a boat and obviously I need to fill it with fishing customers and that demands doing other things at other times of the year. And so we do a cross section of stuff from very simple family holiday fishing fun things for mackerel or indeed bottom fishing for whatever comes up, bait fishing for whatever comes up. So we do some of that and we do some specific taupe targeting trips where we'll, we'll just go out after those. And we do some specific species targeting trips. We get a good run of spur dogs coming through here in the early spring. And they're great fun, good fun to catch. Pull up a hell of a scrap. A nice impressive beast. Nice March, April kind of fish. We're not blessed with good cod fishing on this coastline at all. The uh, water's very shallow here. And we don't get, get a few small cod laying. Generally very small stuff. We don't get good cod. So our early season work is, from a sort of take-home point of view, uh, generally targeting whiting. A nice run of half-decent whiting, pound, pound and a half, two-pound fish tops, but plenty of them every spring. So it, it kind of is seasonal for us. We start the spring going after 
spur dogs, whiting, dabs, um, that kind of thing. Then as the spring moves on into May, we start bassing and we'll work the bass through May, June into early July. And then once the holiday season kicks off, we'll go on to doing sort of touristy, mackerel fishing, family fun kind of trips. And then as the holiday season starts to dwindle, we're back on the bass hardcore, which of course is the best time of year. So we'll we focus again on the bass fishing September, October time and keep our fingers crossed for good weather to do so. That last question took you away from the bass fishing. What I'd like to do for my final question is to take that focus very firmly back there. What are your thoughts on the future for the species itself? I'd like to see legislative change within the next few years that helps protect our bass stocks. Particularly, I'd like to see the removal of what's often phrased as hobby gillnetting right along our various parts of our coastline. I'd like to see that go. On a European level, it would be nice to see catch quotas reduced to a point where the stocks became sustainable. Going back to the very early part of this interview, because of the fact that a bass guide, or at least from my perspective, I don't demand quantity of fish, I demand consistency. So I, I need to find a few fish every day. Then I am fairly warm about the future. I suspect that it will be almost impossible to damage the bass stocks to a point that they are uh, no longer. Uh, I don't think we are looking at the decline and then complete loss of, of sea bass as, as, as a fish. I think what we're doing, we're in a process of decline. I think the stocks are going to continue to go down because of the persecution they're put under but they will always be there. And I think recreationally, for those that know what they're doing, how to find them, choose the times right, choose the locations right, I think they'll always be there to enjoy and exploit and, and mostly to put back. So I think in the short term, I'd like to see legislative change mostly targeted at the hobby gillnetting that goes on. I just find that a complete waste of fish. I think that once politicians recognise that it really is unnecessary to allow Joe Public to go and gillnet off a beach, uh, it doesn't provide any revenue benefit, it doesn't provide any well, no environmental benefit whatsoever, it, doesn't, it simply doesn't provide any benefit other than a few beers in the pub for the guy who's practising it based on the weight of dead fish that he's caught. I think that that could be something that could be targeted and, and done away with quite quickly. And that would have immediate beneficial impact up and down the coastline. So, yeah, rambling answer, Phil. But uh, uh, for me, some legislative change in the short term. But I don't have great fear in the long term. I, I, I think the stocks are always going to be there at the level that I want to go after them. I think if you're a commercial guy who is commercially exploiting sea bass then times might start getting hard for you, but, you know, it's your own fault. My sentiments exactly. Reap as you sow. 
But very probably, as ever, I doubt that anything worthwhile will ever come along on the legislative scene. At least in the future, if researchers stumble across this recording, they will hopefully appreciate that not everybody in the early part of the 21st century had a live-for-today mentality. Far from it, in fact, and not only with regard to Bass. My thanks then to Tim Harrison for taking the time to make that point for us here. <laughs>